0: We're doing things just a little bit different today. We're going to have our notices um, at the very end. But just want to let this just flow of just enjoying God, um, opening up of ourselves to him, just continue. So really ask you just to open your spirit up to the word of God too this morning and just really say, God, in your heart of hearts, say, God, give me something, feed me, speak personally into my life. Now, at the beginning of the year, um, I like to have one or more weeks where we are all encouraged to actually pray for the work of the church this year. Um, it's a it's a tremendously good topic to be actually praying for. Last week I, I talked about the fact that we're not after time. Time is not the essence, really. Connectedness with God is the essence. Yeah. We can pray for a long time in quite a religious way and think we're doing really well, um, but actually are we? It's, it's have we connected, have we actually made that heart-to-heart connection where he's able to speak into our lives and we know that, we know that we're pouring it out before him, um, the things that we're, we're talking about. Well, this week um, I'm asking you if you would be willing to run a prayer meeting. And that is just to invite a few friends over. It might be Wednesday night, it might be Friday morning um, at 6.30am <laughs> for 10 minutes of prayer or a half an hour of prayer or whatever suits. But, you know, I, I trust you guys. I think God trusts every one of us with more than we realize. And, and the, the following week, um, we have got some prayer times scheduled and we've got people who are willing to open up um, their, themselves, perhaps their home, perhaps here, and give opportunity. But this coming week, who could you invite? Who could you invite? Or who could you have a coffee with at lunch today and make sure you get invited? Yep. Who could you just sidle up alongside? Because the more that we actually pray, um, the more God wants to do things. He, he looks for... He doesn't come to us, this is through the whole Bible, He doesn't come to us and just tell us how our life is to be. He looks for a real connection with each of us. He looks for partnership and and He wants to work with us and He gives us an awful lot of authority um, in our lives to be able to proclaim things and do things. So that's what this week is about. Um, I want to just bring up on the screens our... Our website because I've put together, this is the bottom of our our website page. At the bottom there it says prayers together, prayer together. And if you click on that button there, it'll give you some prayer topics that I've written out that I think are are important. That's certainly not the total picture, but if you were praying into those areas, um, it would be incredibly helpful. So I want to... um, Share just a few thoughts, and then I want to read some stuff about revival over um, the last 300 years, and I think you'll find it incredibly interesting. But I want to start by preaching, first of all, out of Matthew chapter 6, which is the Lord's Prayer. It says this, starting in verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, and to be seen by others. Um, Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what you are doing in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling on like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of many words. Do not... Be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Wow. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts or sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us, our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then the power and the glory, etc., it's not actually there in the earliest manuscripts. It's a great phrase, but it's not actually um, original Bible. Now, I want to start preaching, not out of this passage, but out of a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And and in Luke 11 and verse 1, we're told the context of why Jesus was telling the disciples this. Um, And the context was the disciples had seen him pray And finally, one of them plucked up the courage and said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? That's the context. And so then he says, okay, this is how you pray. Now, it's quite remarkable that the disciples actually asked them, Jesus, that. Because you picture it. These were Jewish boys. They'd been praying all their life. They knew all the ins and outs of prayer, you would think. But when they saw Jesus pray, they said, oh, maybe we've been doing it wrong. Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And so Jesus responded to them. And the parallel today could be, you might have been in church all your life praying. But maybe, just maybe, there's aspects where you and I have been doing it wrong. I wonder if we'd be open to that today and thinking, actually, let me just see how the way I pray and the way Jesus said we to, to pray, whether they're the same thing. First of all, he says, go into your room and pray in secret. Now, he didn't go into his room and pray in secret. He went to the wilderness. He didn't own a house. But he says, most people, you'll own a room. Go into your room and pray in secret. And, and you know, the church me as well, have highlighted we can pray anywhere for years, haven't we? You can pray when you're in the car, you can pray when you need a car park, or you can pray when you're in trouble, you can pray before a test, you can pray before you eat food. But to be honest, most of that prayer is pretty shallow. True? Yeah. Usually it's about my needs, <laughs> what I need. And I wonder what would happen if we just said, look, we're going to do what Jesus actually says, and we're going to have a regular time and a regular place. I wonder what our life would become if we just simply put that discipline and habit into our life and said, God, I just want to make a regular time with you. The second thing he says is that the Father, if you do this, the Father will reward you. And if you see in this little passage here, Two times it says there is reward for people that will make a regular time in a regular place and just spend time with God. Just make it part of their life. And, and uh, for the religious amongst us, you might be thinking, well, I don't, I don't pray for a reward. Well, what I'd say to you is, too bad. <laughs> if you do this, God will reward you. Yep. But really... Really, do we pray for rewards? What is it that most of our prayers are about? Point to that person if you would. <laughs> it's mostly about us. We're hoping for rewards. You know? But if you've been praying for a few years, you'll know that the reward is not always or even often the answers to our prayers. Yeah. It's actually something better than that. And praise God doesn't give us the answer to all of our prayers. We'd all be driving late model cars, living in luxury, and would have married the hottest girl or guy in our school, whether we really would fit with them or not, if God had answered every prayer that we've prayed. No, the reward is actually better for us, and it's better. Now look at the third thing. The Father actually knows what we need before we ask. And I would say what we want, added on to need, need and want, before we ask. He knows it. And this is something that most of us have not grasped. God has told us here an open secret, and most of us have ignored it. We've missed it. In other words, he's saying, you don't need to pray much about the things that are happening in your life, and you need. already know all about it doesn't need to be a lot of time you see he's not learning new information when we tell him some of the stuff that's going on around our life and what's what what we'd like to have happen he's not searching for a notepad to write it down going oh what what were the details and how much did it cost that much oh uh, yeah we could probably do that and then add to that He says, it's not about how many words we use either. He says, don't babble on like the pagans, thinking that constant repetition to me will slowly convince me of what you need or want. (laughs) Prayer is not about twisting God's arm to the point where it gets to a painful spot and, and he goes, okay, okay, I get it. I know what you need. I know what you want. You know, I relent. You can have it. You can marry him, you can marry her, you know, you can do what you wish. I mean, Jesus says, don't pray like that. And friends, prayer doesn't need to be loud or wordy or backed by all sorts of offers of sacrifices. Now, this may just have challenged a lot of what we thought prayer was actually about. See, prayer is not about convincing God to bend to my will. Or your will. That's so deep, I want to say it again. Prayer is not about convincing God to bend to my will and my wants. You see, you and I, we have a will, and we think it's the best thing. And if God would just agree with us, we would have a great life. And we're not trying to bend God to our will. That's where a lot of the babbling and the on and on and on to Him comes from. If anything, when you read this prayer, it's about us being bent to his will, isn't it? That's what prayer's about. You know, if you can manipulate and convince your God that you're right on the matter, how big is your God? Do you want a God that you're able to manipulate and convince? And he goes, yes, yes, I hadn't thought of it like that. You're right. You need that. I'll give it to you. How big would he be if we could do that to him? You know, our God is the maker of everything. He's eternal. He was doing his job before we got born. He'll be doing his job after we've left the planet. And, and we are tiny. We are small in comparison to our God. And that's part of what prayer is about is about getting the, oh yeah, I'm small, God. You can, you're amazing. You've got a far greater plan and process for this world and for my life than i could ever dream up so if it's not about that what is it about well jesus goes on he says this then is how you should pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven It's not so much about God fitting in with us. It's about us learning to fit in with God. And only time in his presence can bring that change where we begin to bend towards him. And we need to major at the beginning. You see, it's not so much, I know there's, Comfort in praying the Lord's Prayer, and many of us do that on a fairly regular basis. Some people do it daily, and it gives great comfort to them. But I don't think Jesus gave it to us primarily for that purpose. It is a model of the categories that we need to make sure that we're praying through to encompass all the things in life that are necessary. And it starts with the greatness of God, He's the God in heaven. You know you think about this place. Um, I was watching that movie last night about what was it called? hidden figures you know and man trying to get to to the moon uh, so into space and then going on from there to the to landing on the moon. but you know when, now we know from science that 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 our 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 galaxy, which is a small galaxy, isn't even in the center of everything. It's on the side, and there's galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies outside. God says, I'm huge. I'm huge. He said, I created all of this. And and figuratively, he says, the earth, he said, it's like a footstool. times, I want to put my feet up, and I just pull the earth over, and I put my feet up on it, he says. And then we realize how small we are as one of seven billion, is it, people, You know, and yet the God of the universe, this huge, massive, amazing God, says, "Come, call me Father," yeah. and gives us the right to be able to call Him Father. So, one of the topics is just is just to be able to praise and glorify Him. When it says, "Hallowed be Your name," it means glorious is Your name. It, it invites us into into um, s- speaking all the the things that we've done in worship today, where we've where we've just honored God for who he is and we've tried to get, because we, without meaning to, we wake up in the morning thinking we're kind of important. Is it just me? It's all of us, isn't it? But worship actually so goes I must decrease, he must increase. And it's, it's the, the thinking things and the heart things of who he is. And then Graham led us in that beautiful understanding of how he was so big, he did this for us. you know. And, and suddenly we come into the right perspective again. And we're allowed to call him father. Father. Father means we respect him. Father means we acknowledge that he's smarter than we are. You know, Father means that He's completely trustable, even though a human Father may have let us down many times. Heavenly Father won't. Father means that He always has our best interests at heart. Father means He's someone to obey even when we don't understand and He carries authority. And when you let your prayer think about these sort of things, you can spend quite a while acknowledging and praising the bigness of God, not immediately going to God, I've got this test coming up. I'd love it if you just made my mind really, really sharp today. Yeah. <laughs> and then prayer focuses on our surrender to, to him, because it says your will be done, Lord, your kingdom first. And it can take some time to get a right perspective when we get up and we want to we begin to pray um, when, when we've been hurt. And when things have been happening and and we would want want this to happen and, and it's our will that this would happen, it takes a while sometimes with the circumstances of life where we say, God, I want your will more than I even want this to be solved. You know, you can say it in a second, but do we mean it? Has anything changed? It often takes time. So you say, how long should I pray? Well, what are you working through? Until you get that perspective that God is huge and we're small, but he's looking after us, pray till you've got it. And you know the thing that happens when we come to that place? We get one of the greatest rewards that we get from prayer. We get a thing called peace. Yeah. And peace in our lives is worth everything. Yeah. Peace in our lives is amazing. Yeah. When you come to a place of peace in your life, even if the circumstances around your life hasn't, haven't changed, everything's changed. Because it's inside of us and it's something God gives. And then wonderfully, once we've got the perspectives right about prayer, God switches the emphasis on prayer to actually be about us. And he says, now pray, give us. Give us. Give us. Because he knows how human we are. He knows that we actually do have needs. He knows our nature. He knows that the needs and sometimes even the wants are quite legitimate. And meeting these things for us is part of the reward. He wants to reward us. And the first thing he talks about is provision. And he says, give us this day our daily bread. We're to pray that on a, on a regular, regular, regular basis. And the picture here for the, the, um, a Jewish book, boy or girl or man or woman, was they would remember immediately in the desert, give us our daily bread. They're going out and collecting the manna. Uh, each each day and they just collected enough up for the day but you know they were never ever supposed to be in the wilderness for that length of time it was an 11 day journey that took 40 years you reckon you and I are slow And so the journey just continued for them. They were always supposed to get to the, to the promised land. And this picture that Jesus gives is of the immediate, but they would also have thought of, yes, the journey went on until we came to the promised land. And for some of us, you know, we're praying, oh, God, please get me out of this financial hole. And if we're honest, we might pray, and God, I know I caused it. But please get me out of it. And he does. He does but his provision is that that the jewish people when they came into the promised land that the blessings would continue and continue till finally the nations would come to them for the resource that they were going to be able to give, and it's the journey of our life, it's the picture of our life that we come to t- come to places financially. We're praying, "Give me my daily needs," but the blessing of God on our life means that the provision around us grows and grows, and we're able to be the source for other people's needs with what we've what we've been given. The generosity can come come out of us, and just remember this: you know, it's. Finance is the one area where God says, test me and see if I am real. Yeah. Malachi, test me in this and see if I don't. Open up the windows of heaven when we, when we put God's principles first. And, and God, God gives us this as a, um, a wonderful, wonderful place to be able to actually test that God is alive. He, he knows my name. He's looking after me and you. You, through the things that come in the way of provision. And then he says, pray about forgiveness and forgiving other people. Now, Jesus was preaching this prior to the new covenant. Jesus had been born, but the new covenant had not actually started. Scholars talk about the time between Jesus' birth and his death, which is the start of the covenant, because it takes blood to start the covenant. His blood was what started the new covenant. Yeah. Now, we live in the new covenant, but scholars will often refer to this as the time of transition. And, and if you know, if you read those verses further on, it talks about if you don't forgive people, then your father won't forgive you. It's law. But the principle and the illustration of what is being, being taught here is that we are always encouraged. So we are always forgiven. Graham brought that out in in, uh, the communion this morning. We live on the side of the new covenant where Jesus paid for everything. Nothing was left of our sin that he did not pay for. Even people who've never been born yet, all were placed on Jesus and punished on Jesus, which is an amazing thing. But you know... The fact that we need daily to be remembering forgiveness is that we need to, be, to understand that we are totally forgiven and we need to live in the fact that we are totally forgiven and we need to be able to, with joy, come to God and say, God, I thank you that I am totally forgiven. And you know what? When we do sin going on, God doesn't want us arrogantly just to say, oh, it doesn't matter. No, we need to come day by day before him and say, God, thank you that you've forgiven me even this new thing. God, I just confess it and openly bring it before you today. And you know what it does in our lives? It means guilt and shame are gone. Yeah. Yeah. They don't hang around our life. Christians are amazingly privileged to be able to live light. Yeah. You know, we live in a country where the suicide rate is one of the highest in the world. It's not the highest, from my understanding but it's extremely up there. And Christians, amazingly, through praying for provision, praying for and just acknowledging and receiving, if you like, positionally we are forgiven for everything. But we need to receive that into our hearts and lives and just acknowledge who we are, what I was preaching on last week. Don't hide stuff. God sees it anyway. Just come open before him and just just. Deal with that stuff with him. He's already got the provision for us. It's all there for us. No guilt, no shame. And it's just one of the most wonderful blessings that we have in our lives. And then the hardest part of forgiveness is forgiving other people. That didn't seem to really lodge. (laughs) I didn't hear any, oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) Because what happens is if we do something wrong and we come to God, we are really happy to be forgiven. Can I get an amen? amen. But if someone does something to us, we are really usually very slow to give a you are forgiven. Yeah. Yeah. We want justice. We want them to pay. We want them to know what they've done. It's really hard to forgive people. And the problem is, if you look, if were born into a family... If you were born with no parents, then you don't have a family. But if you were born into a family, or if you have, have uh, go to work, or if you come to church, or you're part of a club, you will meet with people. And the guaranteed thing with you when you meet with people is that there will be offense or hurt at some time. And God says every day, remember how greatly I forgave you. And just give it away to other people. The real reality is it can take a while to get up off your knees or to move from that chair where you're praying so that you know you've actually let everybody free. It can take a while of prayer before that actually becomes real. And then it goes on and it says, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Well, when you think about this, we don't really need God to lead us into temptation. We can find plenty of it by ourselves. And so this this little scripture has often kind of baffled people, but it's actually talking about protection. It's saying, saying, God, we need you to deliver us from the evil one. We need protection because there's far too many opportunities for selfishness, self-indulgence, and self-love in this world. And we, we need to pray for God to protect us. So when we're talking about us, these three aspects of praying for provision, praying for forgiveness... And praying uh, or receiving forgiveness, acknowledging forgiveness, and, and praying for protection covers an awful lot of our life. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. And Jesus is saying, prayer is not supposed to be all about you or about me. It's supposed to be mostly about Him. And we get, when we get the perspective of God's bigness and our smallness and our, our gratitude to Him right... We can go on and we can include our needs, but we don't actually have to major on our needs because he told us before he started, the Father knows all about them anyway. (laughs) So I hope that's really helpful for you in terms of your own prayer. I'm just talking about um, individual prayer as the basis of how you live your life. Last time I was really emphasizing, make sure it's actually connected prayer. Make sure that you're not going through the motions, but you're actually being real with yourself and real with God. And then this gives a great pattern that people have used for every generation, and they'll still use it after we're gone, of praying into these areas. But there's another aspect of prayer, which is corporate prayer. And this is, this is prayer that kind of builds upon our own personal relationship um, with God. And I just that's what we're talking about today. Um, for these next couple of weeks, where you're inviting folks over to your home this week, I hope, and then next week, making yourself available for one or two or more prayer times so that we're actually praying for the church. Because I started by saying that praying for the church is really important. Jesus didn't just die for our personal individual salvations. There are a number of other things that were part and parcel of that, one of which was to birth this body of people called the church, that he would display himself in and fit together and cause to become so, so, such friends and such um, relational people journeying life together that congregations like this would grow all over the world. And it would just be this amazing body. We can go to any country in the world, including the, the darkest and the, and the most difficult countries on this planet, and we will find the body of Christ. We'll find people who are singing probably similar... You might even recognise the tune and and know what they're they're singing, but they're singing in a different language. We can travel anywhere in the world. We belong to the biggest franchise in the entire world. It's not Walmart. Walmart's not the biggest. It's not anything other than the church. We've got hospitals, schools, local congregations. We've got the lot. We've got the, the best in health um, healthcare. We've got the best in, in um, helping uh, the development of, of new countries. We we can put our hand up and say we belong to one of the we, the biggest organisation with, with the most impact in this entire world. Yep. Yep. And God calls us to pray for this thing called the church. And so I just want to um, share a little bit of stories about three awakenings that have come upon the world in the last 300 years. They, What has happened is that um, largely it's happened in England and America, but also spread to uh, India at times, uh, to Australia, New Zealand, and other places. But there have been three major awakenings as God has just put into his people a heart for prayer. And the reason that Awakenings. one of the key reasons why awakenings have happened is that the state of the, the nations has gone so low, the church has finally said, we've got to pray. So I just want to share these stories. I, I think you'll find them interesting. Um, and, and I'm quoting a guy by the name of Dr. J. Edwin Orr, who is a leading scholar about revivals. And he says this, Um, There has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. So not that go into your room and pray by yourself in secret prayer, but let's gather together as the body of Christ and pray for the things that are happening in our nation. He says, not many people realize that in the wake of the American Revolution following 1781, there was a moral slump in America. Drunkenness became epidemic, and out of a population of five million people, 300,000 were confirmed drunkards. Uh, they were burying 15,000 a year. Profanity was the most of, of the alcoholics. Profanity was the most shock of the most shocking kind, for, and for the first time in the history of American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night for fear of assault. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. So what about the churches? And they go through a number of things here but basically the church was in decline everywhere. It says in a typical congregational church, the Reverend Samuel Shepherd um, in Massachusetts in 16 years had not seen one person come to Christ and join the church. Whoa. It says the Protestant um, Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Sel- Sel- Samuel Provost quit functioning. He had confirmed no one for so long that he decided he was out of work and he took up other employment. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madsen, and said that the church was too far gone to ever be redeemed. And um, that famous quote, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. Um, A poll was taken at Harvard, so this is in the time after 1780, 1781 Um, a poll was taken at Harvard and they discovered not one believer in the whole student body they took a poll at Princeton a much more evangelical university where they discovered only two believers in the student body and only five that didn't belong to the filthy speech speech movement of the day and they give a, a lot of other instances Um, In another place in New Jersey, they said Christians were so few on campus in the 1790s that they met in secret like a communist cell and they kept their minutes in code so that no one would know that they were Christians. So how did the situation change at this stage in America? Well, there was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in Edinburgh in England named John Erskine who published a memorial, as he called it, pleading with the people of Scotland and elsewhere to unite in prayer for the revival of religion. He sent one copy of his little book to Jonathan Edwards in New England, that's in America. The great theologian was so moved, he wrote a response which grew longer than a letter so that he finally published it as a book. Here's the title. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scriptural promises and prophecies. (laughs) He was eloquent, obviously. That's the title. You can imagine what was on the inside. And here's here's, here's what Orr says. He said, Is this not what is missing from much of our evangelistic efforts? Explicit agreement Visible prayer and unusual prayer, he's talking about today. So, this movement in 1792, this movement that had started in Britain through William Carey and others, um, they began what was called the British Union of Prayer. In New England, there was a man of prayer named Isaac Backus, a Baptist pastor who in 1794, when conditions were at their worst, addressed an urgent plea for prayer for revival to pastors of every Christian denomination in the United States. So it started in England, the letters were sent to Jonathan Edwards, he wrote the book, and now things slowly begin to take place. Churches knew their backs were to the wall. All the churches adopted the plan until America, America, like Britain, was interlaced with a network of prayer meetings which set aside the first Monday of every month to pray. And it was not long before revival came. When the revival reached the frontier in Kentucky, it, um, it encountered a people really wild and irreligious. Congress had discovered that in Kentucky there had not been more than one court session held in five years. Peter Cartwright, a Methodist evangelist, wrote that when his father had settled in Logan County, it was known as Rogue's Harbour. The decent people in Kentucky formed regiments of vigilantes to fight for law and order, and they fought a pitched battle with the outlaws, and they lost. So there was a Scottish-Irish Presbyterian minister. There you go. Scots-Irish Presbyterian minister named James McCready, whose chief claim to fame was that he was so ugly, he attracted attention. (laughs) And McCready settled in Logan County to pastor three little churches, and he wrote in his diary in the winter of 1799 that for the most part it was all weeping and mourning and the prayer for the people of God. Lawlessness prevailed everywhere. But McCready was such a man of prayer that not only did he promote a concert of prayer every first Monday of the month, but he got his people to pray for him at sunset on Saturday evening and at sunrise on Sunday morning. And then in the summer of 1800, um, the, the Great Kentucky Revival came, and 11,000 people came to a communion service. Wow. That's not bad. <laughs> Does prayer work? Mm, better study history. And so out of the second great awakening, because there was one before this that I'm not talking about, um, came the whole modern missionary movement and its societies. Out of it came abolition of slavery, popular education, in other words, the schools, um, Bible societies, Sunday schools, and many social benefits accompanied the evangelistic drive. But following the second great awakening, conditions again deteriorated. See, it's like judges. When God moves on a people and they know God because they experience him, Unless it passes to their children, it'll wane. And it did it again. Um, in September, eight, so we're now talking about another revival. In September 1857, a man of prayer, Jeremiah Lanfer, um, started a businessman's prayer meeting in the upper room of the Dutch church building in Manhattan. In response to his advertisement that he put out across the whole city, only six people out of a population of a million showed up. But the following week, there were 14, then 23, and then it was decided to meet every day for prayer. And by late winter, they were filling the Dutch Reformed Church and the Methodist Church on John Street and the Trinity Episcopalian Church on Broadway. And in February and March of 1885, every church and every public hall in downtown New York was filled with people praying. See, God just poured something out upon, upon the land because people needed it. Yeah. And Horace Greeley, a fam- the famous editor of uh, some paper, sent a reporter with a horse and buggy racing around the prayer meetings to see how many men were praying. And in one hour, he, couldn't, he could only get to 12 meetings. Remember, every hall and every church is full of people. And he counted 6,100 men praying in those 12 meetings. And then a landslide of prayer began, well, got better, which overflowed to the churches in the evening. People began to be converted, 10,000 a week in New York, city alone. The movement spread through New England and the church bells bringing people to prayer at 8 in the morning, 12 at noon and 6 in the evening. And the revival raced up up the Hudson and down the Mohawk rivers, where, the, where Baptists, for example, had so many people to baptise that they went down to the river, cut a big hole in the ice and baptised them there in the cold water. <laughs> and, and it says here, when Baptists do that, they're really on fire. <laughs> and when the revival reached Chicago, a young shoe salesman went to the superintendent of the Plymouth Congregational Church. Who's, this, who's the young shoe salesman? Who knows their history? D.L. Moody, Moody. Um, and asked if he could teach Sunday school. The superintendent said, I'm sorry, young man, I've got a waiting list of 16 teachers who want to teach Sunday school. We've got too many teachers. Um, so the young man insisted and he said, I want to do something now. And he said, OK, just go out on the streets and start a class. He said, How do I start a class? And he said, the guy said to him, get some boys off the street, but don't bring them here, take them out into the country, and after a month, you'll have control of them, then bring them in here. <laughs> so he took them to a beach on Lake Michigan, where he taught the Bible verses and Bible games, and then he took them to the Plymouth Congregational Church, and that young man was Dwight Moody, who, who just completely went on and became an amazing evangelist, um, Trinity Episcopal Church in Chicago had 121 members in 1857, but they had 1,400 in 1860, three years later. Wow. See, this is, this is what prayer can do, yeah. and God, God pours this out upon people. But he wants to pour it out upon us for the work that he wants us to do. That's why I'm reading it to us, so you can get some inspiration that actually this will make a difference if we yeah. unitedly come together and, and begin to pray for the work of the church. See, it's not, it's not God, please do this for me, please do this for me. I'm not trying to bend God to my will. I'm trying to, trying to get bent to what God wants. Yeah. Okay. We'll see this in, in, a, in a moment too. Um, more than a million people were converted to God in one year. This is Chicago out of a population population. Um, uh, Thirty million. It may, sorry, I'm not going to say that is just Chicago. It was speaking about Chicago first. Then that same revival jumped the Atlantic and appeared back in in, um, in Ulster uh, in Scotland and in Wales and then England and then parts of Europe, South Africa, South and South India. Anywhere there was an evangelical cause, and it sent mission pioneers to many countries. And the effects were felt for forty years. And then 1904, 1905. What happened in 1904? Who knows your history of revivals? 1905, Azusa Street in America. The Welsh Revival, yes. That movement lasted for a generation, but at the turn of the century, there was need for awakening again. Seems like after it ran out, every 50 years, God would send another revival. Um, a great movement of prayer began with special prayer meetings at the Moody Bible Institute, at Keswick Convention in England and places as far apart as Melbourne, Wonsan in Korea and the Nilgiri Hills of South Africa. So all around the world, believers were praying that there might be another great awakening in the 20th century. In the revival of 1905, I read of a young man who became a famous professor, Kenneth Stott, Scott uh, Lateret. Um, He reported that at Yale in 1905, 25% of the student body were involved in prayer meetings, enrolled in prayer meetings and Bible studies, on top of their other curricular things that they had. And as far as churches were concerned, the ministers of Atlantic City reported that out of a population of 50,000 people, there were only 50 adults who were still unconverted. Can God reach a city? It would seem in history he's done it. Take Portland and Oregon, 240 major stores closed from 11 to 2 each day to enable the people to attend prayer meetings. And the owners of the stores signed agreements to say that no one would cheat and stay open. And then the first Baptist church of some place in Kentucky, um, the pastor was an old man, Dr. J.J. Cheek, and he, a, a thousand people came to Christ in two months and he died of overwork. And they wrote on his, uh, 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 his funeral saying that it was a glorious ending to a devoted ministry. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what was happening in, in the United States, 1905. And it hasn't particularly majored on Azusa Street, but that was an incredible outworking. And actually, it was mostly amongst teenagers. started amongst teenagers. God, God often, when he does something fresh and new, takes the kids and takes the kids, uh, youth and and begins there, and they turn things upside down. Okay, let's think about... um, Most people have heard of the Welsh Revival, which started in 1904. It began as a movement of prayer. Seth Joshua, a Presbyterian evangelist, came to Newcastle College, where a a former coal miner... Evan Roberts, aged 26, was studying for the ministry. The students were so moved when they heard Seth's lecture that they asked if they could attend his next campaign nearby. And so they were allowed to go. Evan Roberts went forward at that campaign where he prayed with great agony, Oh God, bend me. Oh God, bend me. Upon his return, he couldn't concentrate at the Bible college. He went to the principal of the college and he explained, I keep hearing a voice that tells me I must go home, speak to the young people of my home church. And he said to the principal, he said, Is this the voice of the devil or is it the voice of the spirit? And Principal Phillips answered him really wisely. He said, The devil never gives orders like that. Go home, take the week off. And so he went back home and the revival began the revival began. And it says, Suddenly the dull ecclesiastical commas, uh, columns and the Welsh papers changed. It said, Great crowds of people are drawn to Lahore. And the main road between Lanely and Swansea on which the church was situated, was packed with people trying to get into the church. Shopkeepers closed early so that they could rush and get a place inside the church themselves. So now the news was out. A reporter was sent down and he described vividly what he saw. A really strange meeting, because when the Holy Spirit comes, lots of stuff happens. He doesn't play by our rules, he plays by his rules. He said, the meeting closed at 4.25am in the morning, and even then the people didn't want to go home. There was, and then it was a very British summary, it said. I felt that this was not an ordinary meeting. <laughs> he said, the next day, every grocery shop in the Industrial Valley was emptied of groceries by the people that were staying on and attending the meetings, and on Sunday every church was, was filled. And the movement went like a tidal wave over Wales. In five months, there were 100,000 people converted through the country. Five years later, someone who acted very foolishly, a Dr J.V. Morgan, wrote a book to debunk the revival. And his main criticism was that of 100,000 people joining the churches, in, in five months of excitement, after five years, only 75,000 had remained in the churches. <laughs> Wow. The social impact of this revival was astounding. For example, judges were presented with white gloves because they had no cases to try. There were no robberies, no burglaries, no rapes, no murders and no embezzlements, nothing. District councils held emergency meetings to discuss what to do with the police, now that the police were unemployed. (laughs) In one place, the sergeant of police was asked for and said, what do you do with your time? And he replied, well, before the revival, we had two main jobs, to prevent crime and to control crowds, like at the football games. But since the revival started, there's practically no crime, so we just go with the crowds. And the councillor asked the sergeant and said, what does that mean? And the sergeant replied, well, you know where the crowds are. They're packing out the churches. But how does that affect the police? And he said, well, we have 17 police at our station, but we have three quartets. And if any church wants a quartet to sing, they simply call the police. (laughs) So as the revival swept Wales, drunkenness was cut in half. There was, though, a wave of bankruptcies, but nearly all of them were taverns. There was even a slowdown in the mines, for so many Welsh coal miners were converted and they stopped using bad language. And the horses that dragged the coal trucks in the mines couldn't understand the new words that were being used to tell them to get going. That revival also affected sexual moral standards. Um, I've discovered through the figures given by the British government experts that in Radnorshire and another shire, um, the legitimate birth rate, uh, illegitimate birth rate had dropped forty-four percent within a year of the beginning of the revival. So the revival swept Britain, Scandinavia, Germany, North America, Australasia, Africa, Brazil, Mexico, and Chile. It always, always began through a movement of prayer. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we mean by extraordinary prayer? Um, uh, Jay Orr, Edwin Orr says, He says, We share ordinary prayer in regular worship services or before meals and the like, but when people are found getting up at six in the morning to pray or having a half night of prayer until midnight, or giving up their lunchtime to pray at noonday prayer meetings, that's extraordinary. And it must be united, and it must be concerted. So I leave those amazing thoughts of quite recent history with us. You know, God wants us to pray for his will to be done, for his kingdom to come, for people in our area to come to know Jesus. And we need a good base of a prayer life. Look, our life, our life will, will, will go forward if we will go into our rooms and close the door and spend time with the Lord and use that pattern of God first and us less. Yep. But you know, there's a place for the church coming together and praying. And I want to encourage you, why don't you run a prayer meeting this week? Why don't you invite someone? Jesus said if two yeah. or three but he said even just two get together I'll be right there. And just pray for the work of the church, for the kingdom of God to be extended and uh, have a great week with it.